Alright. If you would, if you're able, if you would please stand in the reading of God's Word. We'll be in John 14 and starting in verse 1. It says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back to take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Please be seated. Thank you for standing. As we pick up, we're going to kind of pick up a little bit in chapter 14 from last week. We looked at uh, the upper course kind of narrative that Jesus gives his disciples in uh, John's gospel in, 13th, in chapters 13 through 17. And we pick up here in, verse, in chapter 14 and verse 1. He makes his statement at the very beginning of this chapter. Well, we call them chapters. They didn't have that when this was originally written, of course. But he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And so what were they troubled about? If you remember just prior to this, in a few verses before, at the end of chapter 13, he tells them he's getting ready to go away. He tells them several things, actually. And so he talks again about his coming crucifix, his coming death, his coming departure. He also even talks about even Peter, who's just going to, you know, Peter, are you really, do you really love me? Are you really going to stand with me? So he, so the disciples hear that he's going away, and then they hear even one of their own, Peter, who's probably considered the strongest of the group, is going to bomb. He's going to mess up really quick. And so if you got, I, I got to think about this. This would be pretty, probably, if you were in this group of 11 that's left, this would probably be kind of a scary thing because don't you think they're thinking, you know, remember we're in the boat, and the storm came up, and how scared we got. We thought we were going to perish then, and he was in the boat with us. What are we going to do when he's not here? The next time the next storm comes, he's not with us, what are we going to do? And so they're probably a little anxious right now. But Jesus, in this narrative, we're going to see, does a great job of calming their fears. And we're going to see something from this section of Scripture as we go halfway through this chapter, of chapter 14 here. We'll see some things that not only is he telling the 11, he's telling us too. In light of the gospel, in light of the resurrection that's getting to happen in a couple of days. And so... He does something else here, too, in the first part of this passage. He says, trust in God, trust also in me. Jesus does something so beautiful here. He knows they're nervous. They're, their whole conception, their understanding about the Messiah has been turned upside down. He's not this king like David who's going to come and overthrow Rome. Nothing like that at all. They didn't understand this concept of him being a suffering servant. And Jesus knows this. So as he's going through this narrative, he's going to start redirecting their thinking again and make it clear. Because here's the cool thing. Jesus had a far bigger enemy in mind than Rome. He, he could take out Rome any time he wanted to, but the enemy he was coming to take out was the enemy of our souls. Isn't that awesome? They had, this, they had this small view of what they thought it was supposed to be like. But God has the big picture in mind. And he knows this, and he knows they're not there yet, and he knows in a few days they're going to get that. When they see him resurrected, and they get to see him after uh, resurrection, Sunday, they're going to know, and, it's all going to, and when they get the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, this all will come together for him. He knows that's coming for him. But this is where they're at. So he meets them where they're at, and he starts to unfold the truth of what's coming. And what's really cool about this, too, as a believer, there may be seasons in our life where we're going through a difficult season, and we don't see things clearly. We don't understand our circumstances. We may be struggling with them. We may not agree with them. We may not like them. But you know what? We know the one who holds the future. And so we're going to be encouraged the scriptures here to look and keep our eyes on Jesus. Because if we do that, we know that no matter what journey he has us go through, he's going to be with us. Whatever storm that comes to us, we know he's with us. He may let the storm come, just like he did with the disciples in the boat, but he still was with them, just like he'd be with us today. And so, um, and the, and he also does something else too in these first four verses to kind of encourage as well. He gives them this promise, he's coming back. You know, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'll come back to you. 
as a believer in Jesus Christ, there's something about that. I don't know about you, but it's like it's kind of cool to be in a, uh, in, a, in this life, and it's not a game. Some people compare it to a game, but it's not a game. But it's kind of if you were playing a game, you kind of it'd be kind of cool to know the outcome of the game, wouldn't it? But we know the outcome. We know that Jesus is one. We know that one day as believers in Jesus Christ, that one day, no matter what we go through in this life, He's coming back for us. Either He'll take us home to be with Him, or He's going to come back and get us. There's a lot of peace that comes with that. Even amidst all the uncertainty that we face. And these disciples, these 11 are getting ready to go through a whole bunch of uncertainty. Their whole world is getting ready to be turned upside down in just the next few hours. And Jesus knows that's coming. But He's preparing them ahead of time. I love that about the Savior, by the way. As a believer in Jesus Christ, He doesn't just send us out and just leave us on our own, does He? He's always with us. He gives us access to His presence and His strength through the Holy Spirit. And through His Word, we can be encouraged of what the, the truth of our situation is. Like when I'm going through a situation and I don't understand it, this is how I get my bearing. I take what I'm going through and I filter it through this. If we're not careful, we'll take this and filter it through our circumstances, won't we? Through our fears or anxieties or whatever. And so I love as we go through this, we're going to see some things, hopefully learn from this, to take forward as ourselves as believers. But look at verse 4. He makes, it he makes his statement in a very interesting way when he says, uh, let's back up to verse 3. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Now, he doesn't phrase that in the form of a question, does he? Jesus knows they're not there yet. He knows they don't understand this yet. But he phrases it in a, uh, as if it's a done deal. Because he's trying to start taking the process. And don't you think if you're one of the disciples, he says we know the way. He must have told us. <laughs> Where did I miss that at? Don't you think they're starting to think like that? I love that. He's, he's called the master teacher for a lot of reasons, and they're all right. Because he knows these guys are thinking wrong. They're thinking upside down. They're still thinking kind of the old legalistic tradition they came up in, that the Messiah is supposed to look like this. He's supposed to be like a, a warrior king. He's that. But not in the, in the way they were thinking of it. They didn't understand the, surfing, the suffering servant part of it. But there's something else he's trying to do. He's taking their thoughts and the way of thinking. And they're probably thinking, you know, he's been with us all these different things we've learned and we've talked about. Where did he tell us that at? All throughout this whole journey. He's been telling them even just in the chapter before, you know. He's telling them all in the several chapters after this. He tells them time and time again who he is. And so, so they've got to be scratching their head. But look what, I love what uh, Thomas does here in verse 5. Thomas says, well, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I love Thomas' honesty here. And he, he, Thomas, you can tell, he has a sin, sincere desire. He wants to be where Jesus is at, so he wants to make sure he's got this right. In case, you know, Thomas apparently like, well, if he's told me, I've forgotten, so how do we know the way, Lord? And I love what uh, Jesus says in verse 6 and 7. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I put one commentator put it this way, and I thought he did a really good job. Uh, he says that, and the way Jesus worded this comment was, this would ultimately be true after his death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus, knowing this, was to come, spoke as if it were a present reality, that they knew the way. Just kind of like when he told Peter, you're going, I'm going to call you, you know, Cephas. You're going to be a rock. Well, Peter was anything but a rock when Jesus said that. But one day he would be. The Peter on the night Jesus was arrested and the Peter at Pentecost were two different Peters. Jesus spoke about the Peter at Pentecost before it happened, didn't he? Because he knew what was coming. The difference was, once he had the Holy Spirit, once he was able to see everything come to light through the resurrection, it all came clear to Peter. And, Peter was, and all the eleven were never the same again. So Jesus, as he's speaking to these eleven, is speaking a lot of what's coming. Because in Jesus' economy, it's a done deal. But these eleven have yet to experience it. And so, uh, 
And his, uh, let's go to verse 8 here and pick up through here. Pick up verse 7 before we finish that. And look what he says uh, at the end. He says, if you really knew me, you would know my father's well. From now you do know him and have seen him. And so that's obviously, again, this is a done deal. This is They don't have it yet, but they're getting ready to get this in just a few days, really. And Philip said, look what Philip says. Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And this is, look at his response in Jesus. Jesus answered, I, don't you know me, Philip? Even if I've been among you such a long time, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name. So let the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me anything in my name, and I will do it. When Jesus responds here, he does something that's really profound. He does this throughout this entire discourse in the upper room. But he, he continues to bring up, build on this theme of showing the unity between him and the Father. That they're one. And so, he talks about being in the Father and the Father being in him. You talk about assurance this would have been for the disciples. And so, and he does something else here in verse 10. He says, I love how he says this in verse 10. I can't see, my eyes are killing me today. I apologize. He says, don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. So Jesus says two things here. The words I say come from the Father, and the works that I do are his works. So he's, again, we claim indeed, he's saying, I am God. So what I'm saying is from the Father, and what I'm doing is from the Father. And so remember what they said, how do we know the way? Jesus, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. And so... So we know that after the resurrection, these disciples get it. But there's a problem here in this narrative, or at least we get to this point. There's still confusion, and they don't know exactly how this is all going to make sense. But in a few days, we'll see here in, just a, in, a, sec, in a little bit here, how it all comes to, how they just, it clicks for them. But as you look at this passage, this section here where Jesus is making these promises about, when he says in verse 10, again, pick up in verse 11, he says, Believe in me when I say that I'm going to the Father, that I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these. Because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name. After the resurrection, these eleven were never the same again. It was completely, they were completely transformed. And at Pentecost, man, they turned the whole world upside down. Peter spoke and 3,000 people got saved. Remember the night of Jesus' crucifixion or his arrest? He denied him three times to three different people. He was so scared to death. But at Pentecost, he boldly stands up and shares and 3,000 people get saved. Their response to the gospel is pretty powerful. We all know it a million times. We've seen it over and over again through the New Testament. But I want to look at another passage here to kind of way of comparison, by way of contrast. Jesus says a lot of similar things here to another group in John chapter 5. I want you to turn there real quick with me. We're going to look at Jesus talking to the religious establishment of his day. And he says a lot of the same things to these guys. We're going to look at their response. And hopefully we can learn from this for us today. And take a lot from this to be encouraged by. We'll start in verse 16 of John chapter 5. And of course Jesus was doing the wrong thing. He's healing on the Sabbath again. And that was a no-no amongst 8 billion other things they were against. And so, which is hard to imagine. You take somebody who's, who's crippled and you do what he does. And they, it shows you how hard the hearts have become. 
that here was the Word who became flesh living among them. The reason they couldn't recognize that because when they had the written Word, they didn't even honor that. How much less were they going to acknowledge the living Word? And so, look at verse 16. It says, so, Je so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, of course healing, the Jews persecuted him. And Jesus said to them, My Father is always at work, is always at His work to this very day. And I too am working. <laughs> For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he's calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He does the same thing here they did with the disciples, doesn't he? Look what he says in verse 19. Then Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. But the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he'll show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives life, gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Also a messianic time. Verse 28. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Verse 31, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. He's referring to in their eyes. Obviously, if Jesus says anything, it's valid, right? Look what he does here. You talk about a, a loving God who would condescend to what he does right here. It's unbelievable. I, I mean, I can't get my mind around this, to be honest with you. Look at this in verse 32. There's another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. I love that Jesus clarifies here for him, too, though. <laughs> Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. Think about that for a second. The Son of the Most High God is having to justify himself to this bunch of re this religious crowd. Because they, won't, they don't believe his written word, and now they're not believing his spoken word. But he says, I mention it that you may be saved. That shows you he's not willing to any should perish. Isn't that an awesome guy? Luke says in the next verse, John 30, uh, 30, verse 35, John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the very work that the Father has given me to finish in which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. Listen to this indictment he gives them. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. This is a very familiar passage, but listen to how he says this. This is a really, really condemning statement that our Savior tells these guys. You diligently study the scriptures because you think by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. There's a phrase, there's a quote a commentator writes on that verse, and I thought this is exactly true. They were satisfied with having the words, instead of experiencing the person who spoke the words. They had this scriptures, and they were always in the scriptures studying, but the scriptures weren't in them. You know? 
And I wrote this. I had a title for this message. It would be living for the eternal instead of the external. These guys were all about the external, about the way they looked, the way they talked, the way they act, and trying to take that and impose it on everybody around them. So in response, the response of religious leaders and the Pharisees and that of the disciples shows two different responses, don't they? One, which was an empty, dead, legalistic, lifeless religion. And having the others, the 11, they had a real living relationship with the Savior. I wrote this down as I was thinking about the differences between these two responses and these two groups of people. The Pharisees and religious leaders had read about God. The 11 walked with Him. Those are not the same thing. One group read about Him. It could tell you a lot of different facts, a lot of information. Most of that was inaccurate, unfortunately. But they could tell you a lot of information, what they thought they knew about God. The 11 walked with Him. Not the same. The Pharisees exercised external changes that they could come up with in their own strength. Whereas the eleven experienced eternal changes from within because of what happened to them. One group was trying to do it so they could be right with God or stay right with God or stay in the right standing with God. The other group did it because they had been made right by God. After Pentecost, the disciples, they changed the world because of what had been done and changed in them by the Savior. The power they received from the Holy Spirit and through the testimony of the gospel in their lives was, was just totally not. It changed their hearts and lives. It changed everybody they came in contact with because it was real. Remember verse 15. We'll pick up verse 15 here. But Jesus does something here that's really uh, just a beautiful thing. And John, go back to John chapter 15, uh, 14 and pick up verse 15. He promises something here. Again, these disciples are still in a state here where... You know, they're, they're listening to Jesus, but man, they're still unsure. They're fearful. And they're thinking, he's leaving us. So how we do? How, how does this work without him? Look what he says in verse 15. If you love me, you obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you every now and then. No. It's forever. The Spirit of truth, of course, the Holy Spirit. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, which the Pharisee group would fit into that category that Jesus was talking back to in, in John chapter 5. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you and will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I'm in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love him and show myself to him. In just a few days, Jesus is telling him, I'm going to send the counselor to come to you. And they didn't understand what this meant yet. Don't you think on resurrection morning, when they saw Jesus, he comes in their midst and says, peace be with you. <laughs> He's talking about, I'm here. And after that, can you imagine? And after Pentecost, they received the Holy Spirit. This whole, I can't imagine being in that group and having Jesus being there physically with him. That just is an amazing thing to think. I would love, that had to be an amazing experience. But then Jesus says, you know what, this is going to be even better for you. Now I want to send the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. Can you imagine that? This is unbelievable. This has got to be just incredible. But their mind, they're not there yet, obviously, because they haven't. This is still a few days before this takes place, as far as the resurrection. And this is still several days, several weeks before Pentecost. And so he promises the Holy Spirit, and he says he will not leave them as orphans. That's a love, I love that picture. The God, the Lord Jesus Christ in the Scriptures paints such beautiful word pictures. That's a very descriptive term. He's not going to leave us as orphans. That's for, uh, by the way, that's true for us, too. Once we come to faith in Christ, He says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. We're not going to be orphans. 
if you think of an orphan, you think someone's helpless, defenseless, can't can't defend themselves, can't take care of themselves, and just kind of at the mercy of whoever and whatever, you know? Not a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. He says, I will never leave you. I won't leave his orphans. And so, in a few days, the grace, you know, back in verse 11, he's getting ready to do what he said in verse 11 on a whole different level. Remember what he said in verse 11, he encouraged him? He says, you know, he's talking about, uh, talking about believing. He says, believe me when I say that I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. <laughs> in a few days, he's going to top that. Not just because he rose from the dead, and that's a big deal, but to God, really, I mean, let's, let's be honest, that's not, that nothing's a big deal for God. But what was the really big deal was, not that he just rose from the dead, was that he said, the Father said, that's my stamp of approval on my son's perfect sacrifice for sin, for all time. The disciples finally clicks after this happens. They realize, that's what he was talking about. He didn't come to destroy Rome. He came to destroy sin. Rome was an enemy, but they're not our biggest enemy. Our enemy is Satan. And now we no longer have to fear that. Can you imagine? We thought Rome was just this huge obstacle we had to overcome. And that, was, that, was, that probably surrounded their thinking 24 hours a day because their country was ruled by Rome. And they hated that. And Rome was not a, quite a good country to be ruled by at times. But then their eyes were open. Oh, you saved us from our sins. And later they're going to find out not just them, but the whole world. They, they've already been told this, but it's finally going to start coming to light shortly after this. Can you imagine? Taking as a disciple one of the eleven, you've come from this place of just kind of really complete ignorance about the Messiah. You had this wrong teaching for centuries that was kind of ingrained in you ingrained in the culture. And then you walk with it and you start seeing the light. And you get it, but just on a small level, but you still get it. And then he just flood, he just opens the floodgates and reveals all of it to you. And then you think, you, you can you imagine what they must be? They look back and they look back at these Pharisees and think about all these encounters they have with all these people throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. And they, they probably be going, that's what he meant. That's what that was about. So we have a privilege of looking back on the other side of resurrection, the other side of Pentecost, we can look back on the promises that Jesus gave them and see, hey, those came true, didn't they? Because Jesus said they would. These guys are looking ahead. You know, these, the nurse, where they're at, it's not very far ahead, but they're looking ahead to the promises of the Holy Spirit and the promise that Jesus will come back and they won't grieve anymore. And so, as they, I thought this, the, the Pharisees were so busy, and here's how they missed it, one of the reasons why they missed it. They were so busy trying to protect their own Jewish traditions and customs and their own man-made regulations that they came that they, that they'd come up with they missed the heart of God because of this dead lifeless legalistic religion and traditions whereas this 11 Bible's merely one point they refer to as unschooled ordinary men they just knew they'd been with Jesus they saw the living word they walked with him they didn't just read about him they walked with him now as far as the believer today there's a difference between reading about Jesus or hearing about him and walking with him. And so these are extreme comparisons between the Pharisees and eleven, obviously, but you could see just how one area, one, one place will take you over here that you don't want to go, where you just know about him. And we'll see in another passage here of Scripture that that's not our command. We're not commanded and called in Scripture by Jesus. Even when he prays for us, we're going to see a prayer from Paul too. We're not prayed to know about God. We pray, the prayer is always worded differently. We'll look at that in a second here. So, so this, the eleven were not changed by the lifeless rules that they had been around their whole life. They were changed by the power of the gospel. 
And so, by the way, this whole nonsense that the Pharisees had come up with, Paul dealt with that throughout the entire, you see it throughout the entire New Testament, don't you? As believers now, 2,000 years later, we have to be on guard against things that might creep in that will kind of pull us away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look what Paul does here in Colossians 2. Paul gives this very famous and very great warning to a church in Colossus about some things to be on guard against. See, as believers, guys, in Jesus Christ, we have to make sure we keep our guards up. The enemy's, the enemy's so clever. If somebody came up to you and put up a big, fat ghost statue of some whoever or whatever and said, hey, this is God, worship God, we'd laugh at that and say, really? No way. But the enemy doesn't work like that, does he? He's much more devious. He's much more conniving. He's much more subtle. You know, the old saying goes, and it's true. I don't know who came up with it first. I've heard it quoted by Spurgeon. I've heard it quoted by people even before him. You know, Satan knew he couldn't defeat the church, so he joined. I heard Adrian Rogers say it that way one time. I thought, you know what? I never thought of it that way. That's, that's a good way to put it. Satan can't beat the church, so he decided to join it. He masquerades as an angel of life. And so what happened um, with the Israel, What happened in the, in the first century here with Jesus was in the scene? That's what the Pharisees were doing. And we'll see here in Paul. Paul's dealing with some situations here in uh, the letters he writes to Colossians. And uh, in Ephesians and everywhere, a similar, uh, similar challenge. Look at Colossians chapter 2 and look in verse uh, 6. Look how Paul words this. This is a great warning, okay? So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you are taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Verse, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies, which depend on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. By the way, who better to write about that than Paul? This is where he came from. I mean, if you think about it, in God's wisdom, all the people to say to be the greatest church planner at the very beginning of the gospel, when the gospel is fully revealed in the, in the course of redemptive history, the best person that you could possibly think of to be the one to be the greatest church planner and soul winner would be a former Pharisee. Don't you think? What a brilliant God we have. He's so wise and he's so good. But it also shows us again he's not willing that any should perish. And Paul, by the way, this is, I think I've shared this before, you see, this, you see Paul growing in the New Testament, which is kind of a cool thought. Paul, we think Paul came out cooked and ready to go. And probably for the most part he did, at least compared to me he did. But Paul still, we see through some of the things here, we see Paul has some challenges from time to time. But there's a progression, I think I've shared this before, and we'll see this a little bit here, but, but Paul at the very beginning of his earthly ministry, share with his people, you know, I'm the least of the apostles. Halfway through his ministry, you know what he calls himself? I'm the least of the saints. When you get down to First and Second Timothy, towards the end of his life, literally right before he was martyred, you know how he referred to himself? As the chief of sinners. That's the difference between religion and a relationship. The more you know God, the more it humbles you, the more it makes you aware of our need to know him even more. If you just know about God, you become what Paul was before he got saved. Prideful, arrogant, puffed up. Just like these Pharisees who were just so busy just going around trying to point fingers at everybody else and they miss the heart of the Savior. And so look what he says here, continue verse 9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised and putting off of the sinful nature. Not with the circumcision done by the hands of men but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, 
having canceled the written code with its regulations that was nailed, that was against us, and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, this is one of my favorite verses about his victory, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over the cross. You know, I was in, this is probably a really bad uh, comparison, but I was in uh, high school and college. In high school, if you were playing football, if you tackled somebody and took them out really good, we called that smut dog. Well, Satan got smut dog here. He didn't just get beat. He got embarrassed. Not only did he get embarrassed, he was completely and forever just defeated. And look, all of it says, made a public spectacle, a laughing stock. The Most High God was saying, taken care of. Your number one enemy has been forever defeated in my son. Isn't that awesome? As a believer, the hope that gives us, the strength and the encouragement that gives us to know, no matter what I face, the victory's already been won. I've got a lot of fights. I've got a lot of battles ahead of me. I probably have a lot of mistakes and a lot of times where I blow it, but I know the outcome. See, that, that's, the, that's the great thing to believe. The enemy wants us to keep our minds off of the victory that's already been won and the victory that's ahead. He wants us to focus on this little small circle, if he can, of maybe our current defeat, our current challenge, our current sinfulness. Whatever it is, it may, he may have us and get our head down. As Pastor Lee said earlier, if we keep our head up, we don't do that. It's kind of hard to do that, isn't it? But if our heads are down in the sand, so to speak, and we're just so, oh, woe is me, or this situation is so hard, or whatever, we're going to miss the victory that God would have for us in that season. And so, I love that. What a great God. And so, um, as we continue on um, in Colossians here, look what he says here in verse um, 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. That's what some of these guys were doing. Here's the checklist. And if you didn't go to the festival this week and you didn't do this, you didn't wear that, and you didn't wash your hands this way, and all the silliness. You know, they actually came, we talked about that last week in passing, they came to the Savior of the universe, the Savior of our souls, and were critiquing him because his disciples didn't wash their hands a certain way for him. Really? That's how bad somebody's heart can be? That they're so concerned about some external activity? That's why Jesus told him one time, you guys worry about the outside of the cup. And you think that's where it's at. But I'm worried about the inside of the cup. The internal, you know? And so, that's a constant challenge as believers we have to be on guard against. That we don't substitute what's real for something that's certainly not uh, God's best and what we have for us. And so, as we um, continue on here, it says, Therefore, do not let me judge you by what you eat or drink, regard to religious festival, new moon celebration, or Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in the false humility and worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with his idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, of course that's Christ, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. And this last part here. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though do you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? In other words, don't get drawn back into that. What have you been set free from? Remember what the Bible says? When the, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Love that. Then he gives a couple examples of the things that they were struggling with here. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He says these are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. 
You know, I came across this quote about, I got to thinking about these Pharisees and how, how in the world was that appealing to anybody, you know? I mean, how was that, you know, I would run from that personally. At least I think I would. I can't stay in that kind of legalistic mindset. I think maybe because the church I grew up in struggled with that for a while, and that just, man, that just turned me off completely. Especially when you get saved and you see the real thing, and you see a counterfeit like that, it's just it's nothing about it's appealing. And so I thought, well, what, how does that work? And I came across this quote, this author of, a, of this book. He, he, uh, he talks about, he has a sex where he talks about idolatry. He does a great job explaining about how the process works for, for some people who, get, uh, who make this mistake. And he, he says, look at the process. People take something God has made, such as wood. They fashion it to an image of their choosing. Then they overlay it with gold and silver and make it look beautiful. They set it up before them and they begin to worship what their hands have made, depending on it to help them and save them. They call out to it, of course, but it has no ears to hear. Look at the application here. We are in danger of doing the same thing with God's Word. We take what God has said, we fashion and change it to meet our desires, we decorate it with fancy words and phrases of our own making, and then we trust in the Word of God we have changed and expect God to bless what we have fashioned. An example would be to say we would love one another, but there are exceptions. No, not in God's Word there's none. So what God speaks and reveals is the truth. We cannot change His truth and expect God to work. That's exactly what the Pharisees had done for centuries. Paul came from that. That's why you see him write with such passion. Don't go back to what you were enslaved by. You know, He talks about circumcision is not done with hands, but it's done by the Holy Spirit. In other words, what God has done in you is what matters. Christ is the hope in us. And so, I'm going to finish with, uh, before we read this, let's read, uh, flip over to Philippians. Paul has this thing saying, uh, Philippians chapter 3. The best commentary in the Bible is the Bible. We'll see Paul dealing with this again real quickly here in Philippians chapter 3. Paul again talks about being uh, no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in the things he used to take pride in. He says, chapter 3 and verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For as we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was my profit, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness, listen to this, the sound is worded, of knowing Christ. Paul went from knowing about God before he got saved to knowing Him. And that became the priority of his life. Not, inf not just information, but Paul once Paul experienced transformation, see, that's the two approaches. you got a Pharisee that Jesus was dealing with who approached God's Word for information. Paul's talking about you approach God's Word because of the transforming power of the Gospel. These people were informed. Paul was transformed. Totally different. He says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is, and is by faith. Look what he says in verse 10 here. I want to know Christ 
and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. First part of verse 10, I want to know Christ. You never see Paul say it, say it any differently. He never talks about wanting to know about Christ. When he's praying for himself or for the believers, when he's given a doctrinal truth he's disclosing, he's not talking about knowing about God. He's talking about this concept of knowing God, this personal daily walk, this communion with God. And so I had some questions I was writing before we get to this last section and we'll close. I put, are we living for the gospel of Jesus Christ or could we be living for something else? Is really Jesus Christ our first love? Does the scripture inform us or does it transform us? Like when I come full the scriptures each and every day, and I hope you do that, do I do it just for more information about God? So I can answer any questions people might have or, or whatever reason. Or do I come and say, Lord, I need more of you today. I need you to knock more Dave out of me today than you did yesterday. I need to be transformed from what I am to be more like your son. And man, you've got to do it because I can't do it on my own. Is that how we approach God's word? Or is it from a, like a different approach like Paul did before he got saved where, yes, I know this and this about God. Really? Man, totally different. I love, I, love, I love the fact that God chose Paul too because Paul could do this with such honesty and with, with brutal honesty at that, but do it with such a heart and such a passion that few could probably match because he knew what it was like to be dead in his sins, but to think he was okay. And not only to think he was okay, but to go out and just Go after other people, especially the Christians. I think that's one of the things that probably humbled him his entire life. You know it had to. The Lord got him through it, obviously. But what an awesome God. No matter what your biggest or my biggest mistake or sin is in our life, God's bigger than that. This guy was killing and putting in jail Christians before he became saved. And he writes most of the New Testament. Man, is God limited by us? If we'll surrender our hearts to Him, if we will, if we will repent and put our faith in Him and say, just, Lord, You increase and let me decrease. Man, God can and wants to do greater things with His children, His followers, who will stay in Him. The Bible says in John chapter 15, we'll look at that, Lord willing, if you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the key. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. And Paul got this. Look at. We'll close with this um Last prayer here uh, from Paul. This is a, I love this prayer. Ephesians 3. You probably are all familiar with it. Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll start in verse 14. You know, it's awesome. You know, when you, I've always thought, man, it'd be cool to sit in a room and just pick Paul's brain. Just, you know, Lord, could you send him back for like five minutes? I'd love to ask him a bunch of questions. That would be so awesome. How do you do this? How does this work? This, this, and this. You know what God did do for us? He leaves one of his prayers for us to see how the heart of this guy who was walking so closely with God and was used by God like no one else who's probably ever lived. We get to see how this guy prays. A spirit-filled, spirit-led prayer for God's people. Which includes us. <laughs> I love this. And Paul starts off in verse 14 where he says, For this reason, he's referring back to the beginning where he talks about how he was a prisoner of Jesus Christ for the sake of the gospel to the Gentiles. So he says, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, 
may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and how high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that has worked within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. You know, it's um, interesting when you back up here in, in, the, in the part of, uh, uh, I can't see the numbers on my Bible. I'm sorry. My, i got to get these reading glasses. I've been putting that off. That's my pride. Confessing it right now. Next week, I'll probably have glasses, and I'll look really, I, won't, I might look smarter, but that won't be the case, and you know that. So just, I can't do anything about that part. But uh, verse 17, um, we'll back up here. Uh, it says that, um, I pray that of his glorious, verse 16, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being, listen to this, being rooted and established in what? Love. What is it that leads us to repentance? The love of God. It's God's love that led us to repentance. The stuff the Pharisees were peddling wasn't God's love. You couldn't get far. It was nasty. Paul was one of those guys. And that's why you see Paul's journey through the New Testament where he was, I'm the least of the apostles. And that was true in his mind. Then I'm the least of the saints. And by the end, man, the more he started, the more he knew about knew, knew Christ, the more he walked with God, he was like, I'm the, I'm the chief of sinners. God can work with humble people. When God met Paul on the road to Damascus, even the last person that any of us would have chosen for that assignment. And I'm sure the 11, when they were like, oh, say that again? Who <laughs> did you just say? Who are you sending to the Gentiles? Don't you think? They had some problems with that at first. But not long. Once they saw the power of the gospel at work in his life and through his life. This church in Ephesus, by the way, was, you know, this is a special church in Paul's life. I'm sure he spent a lot of time there. So Ephesus had a, they could have a who's who of pastors at their church, by the way, over the course of their lifetime. Paul, Apollos, John, I think Peter for a while. Just, but anyway, there's at least three of those guys. I mean, you talk about a who's who of pastors. This church got in trouble. A lot of people think the last thing that God said to his church was the Great Commission. In the gospel narrative, it is. But in the scriptures, it's not. The last thing that God tells his church in Revelation, the first three chapters of Revelation, is to repent. That's the last clear word we have to the churches that God gives us in the scriptures is to repent this church was called to repent because they were doing some great things you know what they're called to repent from they left their first love if we're not careful we could we could be a church or a people who can get caught up in all maybe good things but we miss the main thing and that's why as a body of believers corporately and individually we want to make sure our lives line up with the gospel that we're about the gospel because if you're about the gospel you're not going to leave your first love because if you remember how you got saved and what you got saved from, you don't get over that. And you want other people to have the same thing that you've got. If you're about the gospel. If we make it about anything else, we won't be about the gospel. And that's a shortcut to away from the, the heart of the Savior. That is a fastest, that's like a highway away from our first love. 
If it's about anything other than the gospel, you might as well be like on the Audubon going the opposite direction from God's will. And so I wrote this down. Just as, as questions. I had this question. I, there's certain questions I always kind of like ask myself, like diagnostic questions, if you want to call them that. But really just things that I think over time that is a, I'm just like trying to keep my guard up for myself first, starting with myself, and also where I'm at. One of the things is I'm always asking myself my time with the Lord. Lord, show me my heart. Is my heart where it needs to be? My, is there any area I've left my first love? Or I, it's not where it could be or should be? Am I, am I my prayers for my interactions with people or prayers for people or my family, wherever? Well, you do that, he will flat out show you that. But it's a good process and it's not, not very fun. It can be painful, but man, very needful. But if I left or if we left our first love, if we haven't, praise God. Let's make sure we don't. Other question I ask, have or am I in the danger of substituting religion for a relationship? Am I going down a path that may lead to more just activity instead of the relationship aspect? I've told this before, and this is true, and we'll, we'll close with this. God's number one priority for a believer, you, me, whoever, is not what we do for him. Is that important to God? I'm sure it is, but that's not the most important thing. It's not even close. You know what God's number one priority for every single believer who's ever taken a breath on this life is? Our relationship with Him. There's not a close second. Everything comes from that. Only if I'm walking in communion with the Father do I then know and understand the Scriptures to a point how I can make application to my life or what He's saying to me in that situation. Or how to use that to help someone else who's hurting or who's lost. It gives us, it brings focus. You know, when Isaiah stood before the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, that's a great picture. When you're in the presence of God, there comes perfect clarity. There comes clarity, at least, like you probably have never had until that moment. If you're not walking with God, you cannot have clarity. Isaiah was a good guy. He thought he was probably doing some good things, but when he saw God in Isaiah chapter 6, I don't get it. And he says, woe is me. You've heard it before. I know Pastor Lucy's preached on this before. That literally means, send me to hell right now. That's what I deserve. Because in that moment, he saw with perfect clarity for the first time <laughs> his standing before a holy God. If we're walking with God, if we're bent on knowing him, spending time in his word, not just being in the word, but the word being in us. In other words, reading the word, being in the scriptures and let the scriptures be in me that it affects my thoughts, my actions, my attitudes, my behavior. That it transforms me, not just informs, but transforms me. If we do that, and we start walking with God, then we will have clarity to understand and discern. That sounds right, that sounds wrong because of what I know here and what I know in my walk with Jesus. Because that's not the heart of the Savior. Or that is the heart of the Savior. Now we don't have to worry about guessing. I've told this to somebody before and and this is true. This is at least a, um, an attempt on my part. can't say it always happens. But if God has something to speak to you or to me personally, individually about, his number one way to do that is to do that himself. If you're a child of God. Now, would he use other people? Absolutely. Well, he can use, he, God can speak however he wants to speak because he's God. He's spoken to me in a variety of ways. And sometimes he's done it all together because I'm so slow and stupid. <laughs> okay, well, it's like that eighth time this week you've told me that. Okay, I think I'm getting it now, you know. If you're like me, that's probably happening to you too. He's a merciful God. Just like we heard, 
he would <laughs> he would send a group to sing Amazing Grace to where that guy's name is. It's just unbelievable evidence of his love. How much more do you think his love is for his children? <laughs> Can't get our minds around that at all. Walk with him. Commune with him. Have, you know, by the way, in Revelation 3, he says the same thing to every one of those seven churches at the end of eight in every section. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That's one of the reasons I've been praying this for myself and corporately. Lord, give me ears to hear. I've got to know what you're saying and what you're doing. Otherwise, I'm just it's just second guess. And that's what I was getting ready to say. God's going to speak to you personally. I don't, if somebody tells me something, I think the Lord's got a word for you, Dave. Here it is. That's happened a few times and almost never been right. <laughs> There's been a few times where it's been so wrong I've laughed out loud. <laughs> okay, great. And they thought, well, I'm, I'm serious. I go, okay, I'm sure you are, but wow. You know, I didn't know how to respond. And there's one person that really, literally, the day after God confirmed something in, uh, in my life, and, and we were praying about it specifically, this was years ago, and God literally just told us something, confirmed it, literally like that weekend. And somebody came and I got this word for you, Dave. And they said something, going, oh, wow. But you know what that showed me? Somebody who meant well. I think they meant well. But it showed me they were kind of an emotional person. They're just, they had a lot of information about God. But it showed me very clearly they hadn't spent any time with Him, at least not in that situation. Because God was like way over here with our decision. And He confirmed it many times over. And they were like way over here. That's why as believers, we need to make sure, because people won't give us stuff all the time. Don't do this, but do this. But what has God told you to do? I make it a point, at least I try to, never to make any decision of any significance, which they're all of a significance, unless I know I've heard clearly from God and His Word. I, just, I don't, I don't want to do I Do I do that sometimes? Unfortunately, and usually it's always not good. But if it's simple, uh, I mean, especially if it's a very significant decision, which again, they all are. I try not, I, I'll, you'll, I'll be like a statue, humanly possible, so I know God has said move or don't move. Because sometimes God will withhold his answer to see if we'll trust him. Like the guys in the boat we referred to earlier. They thought, that apparently the storm got so bad they thought they were going to drown. Jesus kept waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. They got so more anxious and more anxious and more anxious. Okay, Lord, you're going to wake up here? Are you going to help me? Don't you think they were panicking? They even said, they woke him up and said, don't you care that we drown? Wow. And Jesus was like, really guys? Really? Immediately he poked speech in the situation that stopped immediately. And then they, don't you think they realized, he was in control of the situation the whole time. We just didn't have any faith. I heard, I heard a guy say about that uh, situation, says they were looking for peace. Well, peace was asleep in the back of the boat because peace is a person. Sometimes as a Christian life, we're not careful. We'll be we trying to look for peace in the different circumstances or situations instead of the personal relationship we have with Jesus Christ. That's our peace. He's our peace. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the way. He's the truth. He's all.